of The Inner Shrine by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 4 On board the Picardy, steaming to New York, Mrs. Evelyn and Diane were beginning to realise the gravity of the step they had taken. As long as they remained in Paris, battling with the sordid details of financial downfall, America had seemed the land of hope and reconstruction, where the ruined would find to their hands the means with which to begin again. The illusion had sustained them all through the first months of living on little, and stood by them till the very hour of departure. It faded, just when they had most to need of it, when the last cliffs of France went suddenly out of sight in a thick fog-bank of nothingness, and the cold, empty void, through which the steamer crept cautiously, roaring from minute to minute like a leviathan in pain, seemed all that the universe henceforth had to offer them. They would have been astonished to know that, beyond the fog, fate was getting the new world ready for their reception, by creating among the rich those misfortunes out of which not infrequently proceed the blessings of the poor. When that excellent aged lady, Miss Regina von Tromp, sister to the well-known Paris banker, was felled by a stroke of apoplexy, the personal calamity might, by a mind taking all things into account, have been considered balanced by the circumstance that it was affording employment to some refined woman of reduced means, incapable of taking care of the invalid. It had the further advantage that, coming suddenly as it did, it absorbed the attention of Miss Lucilla Van Tromp, the sick lady's companion and niece, who became unable henceforth to give to the household of her cousin, Derek Prune, that general supervision which a kindly old maid can exercise in the home of a young and prosperous widower. Were destiny on the lookout for still another opening, she could have found it in the fact that Miss Dorothea Pruin, whose father's discipline came by fits and starts, while his indulgence was continuous, had reached a point in motherless maidenhood where, according to Miss Lucilla, something ought to be done. There was thus unrest, and a straining after new conditions, in that very family towards which Miss Eveless' imagination turned from this dreary leaden sea as to a possible haven. Since the wonderful morning when the banker had brought her the news of her little inheritance, her thoughts had dwelt much on Van Tromps and Pruins, as representatives of that old New York clan with which she deigned to claim alliance. And she found no small comfort in going over, again and again, the details of the interview which had brought her once more into contact with her kin. James Van Tromp, she informed Diane, as they lay covered with rugs in their steamer chairs, had been gruff in manner, but kind in heart, like all the Van Tromps she had ever heard of. He had not scrupled to dwell upon her past extravagance, but he had tempered his remarks by commending her resolution to return to her old home and friends. In the matter of friends, he assured her, she would find herself with very few. She would be forgotten by some and ignored by others, while those who still took an interest in her would resent the fact that in the days of her prosperity she had neglected them. In any case, she must have the meekness of the suppliant. As her means at most would be small, she must be grateful if any of her relatives would take her without wages as a sort of superior lady's maid, and save her at the expense of board and lodging. And so you see, dear, she finished humbly, it's going to be all right. George thought of me, and far more than any money I value that. 
James Van Tromp said that this sum had been placed in his hand some time ago to be specially used for me, and I couldn't help understanding what that meant. When my boy saw the disaster coming, he did his best to protect me, and it will be my part now to show that he did enough. If Diane listened to these familiar remarks, it was only to take a dull satisfaction in the working of her scheme. But Mrs. Eveliss' next words startled her into sudden attention. Hadn't I heard you say that you knew James Van Tromp's nephew, Derek Prynne? I did know him, Diane answered with a trace of hesitation. You knew him well? Not exactly. It was different from well. Different? How? Did you meet him often? Never often, but when we did meet. The possibilities implied in Diane's pause induced Mrs. Eveleth to turn in her chair and look at her. You've never told me about that. There wasn't much to tell. Don't you know what it is to have met, just a few times in your life, someone who leaves behind a memory out of proportion to the degree of the acquaintance? It was something like that with this Mr. Bruin. Where was it, in Paris? I met him first in Ireland. He was staying with some friends of ours the last year Mamma and I lived at Kilroan. What I remember about him was that he seemed so young to be a widower, scarcely more than a boy. Is that all? It's very nearly all, but there is something more. He said one day when we were talking intimately, we always seemed to talk intimately when we were together, that if ever I was in trouble, I was to remember him. How extraordinary! Yes, it was. I reminded him of it when we met again. That was the year I was going out with Marie de Nohant, just before George and I were married. And what did he say then? That he repeated the request. Extraordinary, Mrs. Ebeth commented again. Are you going to do anything about it? I've thought of it, Diane admitted, but I don't believe I can. Wouldn't it be a pity to neglect so good an opportunity? It might rather be a pity to avail oneself of it. There are things in life too pleasant to put to the test. He might like you to do it. After all, he's a connection. Not caring to continue the subject, Diane murmured something about feeling cold and rose for a little exercise. Having advanced as far forward as she could go, she turned her back upon her fellow passengers, stretched in mute misery in their chairs or huddled in cheerful groups behind sheltering projections, and stood watching the dip and rise of the steamer's bow as it drove onward into the mist. Whither was she going, and to what? With a desperate sense of her ignorance and impotence, she strained her eyes into the white, dimly translucent bank, from which stray drops repeatedly lashed her face, as though its vaporous wall alone stood between her and the knowledge of her future. If she could have seen beyond the fog and carried her vision over the intervening leagues of ocean, so as to look into a large, old-fashioned New York house in Gramercy Park, she would have found Derek Pruin and Lucilla Van Tromp discussing one of the cardinal points on which that future was to turn. That it was not an amusing conversation would have been clear from the agitation of Derek's manner as he strode up and down the room, as well as from the rigidity with which his cousin, usually a limp person, held herself erect, in the attitude of a woman who has no intention of retiring from the stand she has taken. "'You force me to speak more plainly than I like, Derek,' she was saying, "'because you make yourself so obtuse. You seem to forget that years have a way of passing, and that Dorothea is no longer a very little girl.' 
She's barely seventeen, no more than a child. But a motherless child, and one who has been allowed a great deal of liberty. Is there any reason why a girl shouldn't be a free creature? Only the reason why a boy shouldn't be one. That's different. A boy would be getting into mischief. Even a girl isn't proof against that possibility. It may be a boy's kind of mischief, but it's a kind of her own. Unwilling to credit this statement, and yet unable to contradict it, Prune continued his march for a minute or two in silence, while Miss Lucilla waited nervously for him to speak again. It was one of the few points in the round of daily existence on which she was prepared to give him battle. It was part of the ridiculous irony of life that Derrick, with the domestic incompetency natural to a banker and a clubman, should have a daughter to train, while she, whose instinct was so passionately maternal, must be doomed to spinsterhood. She had never made any secret of the fact that to watch Derrick bringing up Dorothea made her as fidgety as if she had seen him trimming hats, though she recognised the futility of trying to snatch the task from his hands in order to do it properly. The utmost she had been able to accomplish was to be allowed to plod daily from Gramercy Park to Fifth Avenue, in the hope of keeping bad from becoming worse. And even this insufficient oversight must be discontinued now, since Aunt Regina would monopolise her care. If she took the matter to heart, it was no more, she thought, than she had a right to do, seeing that Derrick was almost like a younger brother. And with the exception of Uncle James in Paris and Aunt Regina in New York, her nearest relative in the world. As she glanced up at him from time to time, she reflected, with some pride, that no one could have taken him for anything but what he was, a rising young New York banker of some hereditary line. As in certain English portraits, there is an inborn aptitude for statesmanship. So in Derek Prune there was that air, almost inseparable from the Van Tromper kinship, of one accustomed to possess money, to make money, to spend money, and to support moneyed responsibilities. The face, slightly stern by nature, slightly grave by habit, and tanned by outdoor exercise, was that of a man who wields his special kind of power with a due sense of its importance, and yet wields it easily. Nature, having endowed the Van Tromps with every excellence but that of good looks, it was Miss Lucilla's tendency to deprecate beauty. But she was too much of a woman not to be sensible of the charms of six feet two, with proportionate width of shoulder, and a way of standing straight and looking straight, incompatible with anything but acting straight, that was full of a fine dominance. That he should be carefully dressed was but a detail in the exactitude which was the main element in his character. While his daily custom of wearing in his buttonhole a dark red carnation, a token of some never-explained memory of his dead wife, indicated a capacity for sober romance which she did not find displeasing. Then what would you do about it? he asked at last, pausing abruptly in his walk and confronting her. There isn't much choice, Derrick. Human society is so constituted as to leave us very little opportunity for striking into original powers. Aunt Regina has told you many a time what was possible, and you didn't like it. But I'll repeat it if you wish. You could send her to a good boarding school. Never. Or you could have a lady to chaperone her properly. Rubbish. Well, there you are, Derrick. You refuse the only means that could help you in your situation. And so you leave Dorothea a prey to a woman like Mrs. Wappinger. You'll excuse me for mentioning it, but... I'd excuse you for mentioning anything, but even Mrs. Wappinger ought to have justice. You know as well as I do that Uncle James wanted to marry her. 
and it was only her own common sense that saved her from having her as an aunt. You may not admire her type, but you can't deny that it's one which has a legitimate place in American civilization. Ours isn't a society that can afford to exclude the self-made man or his widow. That may be quite true, Derrick. Only in that case you have also to reckon with his son. Derrick bounded away once more, making manifest efforts to control himself before he spoke again. You know this subject is most distasteful to me, Lucilla, he said severely. I know it is, and it's equally so to me. But I see what's going on, and you don't. There's the difference. What should a young man like you know about bringing up a schoolgirl? To see you entrusted with her at all makes me very nearly doubt the wisdom of the ends of Providence. She's a good little girl by nature, but your indulgence would spoil an angel. I don't indulge her. I've forbidden her to do lots of things. Exactly. You come down on the poor thing when she's not doing any harm, and you put no restrictions on the things in which she's willful. If there's a girl on earth who's been brought up backwards, it's Dorothea Pruin. She's my child. I presume I've got a right to do what I like with her. You'll find that you've done what you don't like with her when you've allowed her to get into a ridiculous, unmaidenly flirtation with this young man Wappinger. I shouldn't let that distress me if I were you. As far as Dorothea is concerned, your young man Wappinger doesn't exist. That's as it may be, Miss Lucilla sniffed, now on the brink of tears. That's as it is, he insisted, picking up his hat. It's to be regretted, he added, with dignity, as he took his leave, that on this subject you and I cannot see alike. But I think you may trust me not to endanger the happiness of my child. Even if Diane could have transcended space to assist at this brief interview, she would probably have missed its bearing on herself. But had she transported her spirit at the same instant to still another scene, the effect would have been more enlightening. While she still stood watching the rise and dip of the steamer's bow, Mrs. Wappinger, in a larger and more elaborate mansion than the old-fashioned house in Gramercy Park, was reading to her son such portions of a letter from James Van Tromp as she considered it discreet for him to hear. A stout, florid lady in jovial middle age, her appearance as an agent in her affairs would certainly have surprised to Diane had the vision been vouchsafed to her. Passing over those sentences in which the old man admitted the wisdom of her decision in rejecting his proposals, on the grounds that he saw now that the married state would not have suited him, Mrs. Wobbinger came to what was of common interest. You will remember, my good friend, she read with a strong Western accent, that both at the time of and since your husband's death I had been helpful to you in your business affairs and laid you under some obligation to me. I have therefore no scruple in asking you to fulfil a few wishes of mine in token of such gratitude as I conceive you to feel. There will arrive in your city by the steamer Picardy on the 28th day of this month two foolish women, answering to the name of Evelith, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, both widows, and presenting the sorry spectacle of Naomi and Ruth returning to the land of promise after a ruinous sojourn in a foreign country, with whose history you are familiar from your reading of the scriptures. Is there a Bible in the house, mother? Carney Wappinger asked, swinging himself on the piano stool. I think there must be somewhere. There used to be one. But hush, let me go on. They will descend, she continued to read, at a modest French hostelry and university place to which I have commended them as being within their means. I desire first that you will make their acquaintance at your earliest possible convenience. I desire next that you will invite them to your house on some occasion, presumably in the afternoon, 
where you can also ask my nephew, Derek Pruin, and Lucilla von Tromp, my niece, to meet them. I desire, furthermore, that though you may use my name to the Madame Eblith as a passport to their presence, you will in no wise speak of me to my relatives in question, or give them to understand that I have inspired the invitation you will accord them. Mrs. Wappinger threw down the letter with the emphasis of gesture which was one of her characteristics. There! she exclaimed in a loud, hearty voice, not without a note of triumph. That's what I call a chance. Chance for what, mother? Chance for a good many things, and first of all for bearding Lucilla Van Tromp right in her own den. I don't see. No, but I do. We're on to a big thing. I've got to go right there, and she's got to come right here. She's held off, and she's kept me off. But now the ice will be broken with a regular thaw. Still, I don't see. It's one thing to invite her to oblige old man Van Tromp, but it's another thing to get her to come. She'll come fast enough this time. She'll come as if she was shot here by a secret spring. There is a secret spring. You may take my word for it. I don't know what it is, and I don't care. It's enough for me to know that it's in good working order. Which it is, if James Van Tromp has got his hand on it. James Van Tromp may look like a fool and talk like a fool, but he isn't a fool, no sir. It is commonly believed that a woman never thinks otherwise than gently of the man who has wanted to marry her. And if this be the rule, Mrs. Wappinger was no exception to it. As she sat on the sofa in her son's room, the mere mention of the old man's name, attended by the kindly opinion she had just expressed, sent her off into sudden reverie. While it was quite true that, in her own phrase, she would no more have married him than she would have married a mole, it was none the less flattering to have been desired. The onlooker, like Lucilla Van Tromp or Derek Pruin, might wonder what were those hidden forces of affinity which led a man to single Mrs. Wappinger out of all the women in the world. To Mrs. Wappinger herself, the circumstance could not be otherwise than pleasing. Seeing her pensive, Carly sprung himself back to the keyboard again, pounding out a few bars of the dance music in Strauss's Salome, of which the score lay open before him. He was a good-looking young man of twenty-two, of whom any mother, not too exacting, might be proud. Very blonde, with well-chiselled features and waving hair, not so tall as to make his excessive slimness seem disproportionate, there was something in the perfection with which he was turned out that gave him the air of a creation. Mrs. Wappinger's drawing him was the more satisfying because of the fact that, relative to herself, he was in the line of progress. He was the blossom of culture, travel and sport, born by her own strenuous generation of successful material effort. To the things to which she had attained, she felt that in a certain sense she had attained herself, on the principle of facit per allium, facit per se. In the social position she had reached, it was a pleasure to know that Harvard, Europe and money had given Carly a refinement that made up in some measure for her own deficiencies. "'Well, what are you going to do about it?' he asked, breaking off in the midst of the cruel ecstasy of the daughter of Herodias and swinging himself back so as to confront her. "'I'm going to give a little tea,' Mrs. Wappinger answered with decision. "'A tay and time, as the French say. "'I shall have those two Evelyths, or whatever their name is, "'Lucille Van Tromp and Derek and Dorothea Pruin. "'You may accomplish the first and the last. "'You'll find it difficult to fill in the middle, "'to say nothing of the old girl. "'Derek Pruin is too busy for teas, in time or otherwise. "'I'm going to have him,' he stated with energy. "'You go round and tell Dorothea she's got to bring him. 
Jesus got to, that's all. He'll come, I know he will. There are forces at work here that you and I don't see, and if something doesn't happen, my name isn't Clara Wattinger. With this mysterious saying, she rose to leave Carly to his music. How very occult, he laughed. Nobody knows James Van Tromp better than I do, she declared with pride, turning on the threshold. And he doesn't write that way unless he has a plan in mind. You tell Dorothea what I say. Let me see. Today is Tuesday. The Piccadilly will get in on Saturday. You'll see Dorothea on Sunday. And we'll have the tea on Thursday next. With a habitual air of triumphant decision, Mrs. Wattinger departed, and the incident closed. End of chapter 4